This is EntreEd Talk, the podcast for entrepreneurial educators by entrepreneurial educators. We are your hosts, Toy Hirschman and Amber Ravenscroft. This podcast is created by the National Consortium for Entrepreneurship Education, or EntreEd for short. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of EntreEd Talk. I am super excited to be here today with Dr. Karen Zada. She is a social entrepreneur and social entrepreneur, and so we're going to learn a lot about what she's doing today. Prior to teaching college psych and innovation entrepreneurship courses, Karen's workplace ideals developed through experiences in family businesses, nonprofits, startups, and Fortune 500 organizations. Karen's formal education includes speech and hearing sciences, business administration, and industrial organization psych, otherwise known as the psych of the workplace. Earned through traditional and non-traditional organizations of higher learning. I'm excited to get to talk about these exciting things. There are so many questions that I had, but before I dive into all of my questions, um, I do want to know about your trajectory in life and how you got to where you are today <laughs> and a little bit more about, um, you know, student Karen and where, where this path took you. You know, it was not a straight line trajectory. Um, it was very messy and it, sometimes I didn't think it really made sense or I wondered what was next. And, you know, working in higher education, uh, we like scholarly sources, but I'm going to tell you that um, this is an Oprah citation. And oh boy, okay. It was from the Oprah magazine and it really hit me at one point about doing purposeful meandering through our lives. And so I think purposeful meandering is really what I've always been doing. And I always was dealing with a battle of um, doing creative and meaningful work and making money. Creative and meaningful, making money. And, and so a lot of the choices that I make, you can see me kind of going back and forth with that. Um, and it really wasn't until I got my dream position that I didn't know I was heading for teaching psychology um, for Paradise Valley Community College in Phoenix. And that allows me to do all of the work that I love. Um, and it really does make sense out of everything that I ever did. It brings every, everything that I did adds up into being useful for what I do now. The people that are listening know we do this so I can see your face. So I'm going to be jotting down things that I already have written down purposeful meandering because I love that phrase. I do want to talk about, so you're in education today and how it's kind of like this culminating role that has allowed you to take everything that you've done so far. In your bio, you mentioned that you've worked a lot and like this, you've also worked in like the startup and these really formal organizations too. So what kind of work did you do in that space? The biggest startup that I worked for was called VideoCart, and it was a spinoff of Information Resources, which is a very large company. There was technology attached to the grocery cart, and as you walk down the aisle, the grocery cart would tell you what's on sale in the aisle. So it was to increase sales for, so you could do electronic couponing. So if uh, Coca-Cola wanted to sell more Coke, they could drop a coupon on the video cart. And as you walked by the Coke in the beverage aisle, video cart coupon would fly up on the screen. So it was really fun. And it was a startup. We had you know, tech things to overcome, but it was also very exciting. People around the country working on this new technology, something completely different in grocery stores. And so that was a, a really pivotal moment because they couldn't tell us what to do, step one, two, three. We all had to figure it out and be good at what we did without, it, without training, without having done it before. And I think that's a powerful experience that can also occur in classrooms in K through 12 and college, because when you have to figure out things without being trained on it, when you have to come up with solutions that don't exist yet, that really makes it a new pattern in life where 
you're used to figuring out things that you haven't figured out before. And that really is kind of at the core of entrepreneurship. I love that. And I, I appreciate the idea of a video card. I feel like that would make me buy things that I don't need. Though. <laughs> yeah, well, and I was with it for, I was with video card for the startup and the shutdown. So oh, yeah. it, uh, it didn't quite make it, but um, it was a, an amazing adventure and other things came out of that. So one thing really always does lead to another. I think that's really important though, that like we understand that not every startup is going to be successful. And I think that's a lot of learning itself. And I love what you said about like K-12 would really benefit from not knowing the path to get to an idea, because I feel like as people get older and they get into the workforce, that's something they really struggle with, especially when they're not exposed to that at K-12. And so giving them the opportunity to like create the path themselves is a very important lesson to learn at that age so that you are, you do have that ability moving forward in the work. I love that. So my next question, because this was the coolest idea that I don't think I knew existed, is in your bio, you talk about how one of your expertise areas is industrial organizational psychology. I can't even say it. So the psych <laughs> of the workplace. And I feel like understanding the psychology behind workplace decisions is probably so important in this entrepreneurial space. So can you like not deep dive into it because I'm sure it's very rigorous, but like, what does that mean? And like, how has it helped your entrepreneurial knowledge? Oh, yeah. And I, I'm, I'll back up for just a second, but how I ended up, because I was a speech and hearing um, undergrad, then I got an MBA. And then on my quest of meaningful uh, and creative work versus making money, I was working for um, pharmaceutical companies. And at one point I did, I got really sick. I ended up in the hospital and they thought if I lived, I would need a pacemaker. And while I was in the hospital, I thought, oh my gosh, I am going to, I'm not going to keep doing this fear-based back and forth between creative and meaningful um, and making money. And so I, that's when I decided to go back to school and get my PhD. And so we've, Originally, I decided to do clinical psychology because I thought at the time that would that made sense for something I was thinking of at the moment. But then clinical psychology really has kind of still a bias, I think, towards people are broken and how to fix broken people. And I really love um, positive psychology or what's right with us, what's right about us and how can we leverage that into working together to do good things. And so I shifted from clinical psychology to industrial organizational psychology or the psychology of the workplace, because to me, we all come as we are. We're a whole interesting people with strengths and things that we have to get past. But if we're all working together based on our strengths, then all of us imperfect, amazing people can get great things done together. And so IO psychology um, really is pragmatic. It's about how are we going to get this done together? How are we going to work together um, in workplaces where we think uh, differently, we're, we're good at different things. Um, but if we bring all of what's great about each of us together, then organizations can be healthy, um, places of well-being, um, and also really productive so that shareholders are happy, employees are happy. And so IO psychology to me is about bringing people together and getting meaningful work done. I love that. I really like the idea of, that you wanted to focus on. I didn't realize, and now that you put it in perspective, that that clinical psych is pretty negative based and deficit based. And I love the idea. In some clinical psychology, there, there are people out there that might get mad at me about that, but I will, I will say that I still think there's a bias toward brokenness um, in clinical psych. We, um, we get on a little bit of a soapbox about the problems in traditional education. So there are probably a lot of people that are like, okay, <laughs> so we know exactly what you're talking about. We probably, we understand 
but I like, I like that you went for something that was about teamwork and how do we make things function and how the science behind that, like, I, I think that's really meaningful and it probably has helped tremendously in the space that you're now in, um, for sure. We talked a little bit about like this juxtaposition of making money and having meaningful work. And a lot of people, when they hear the word entrepreneurship, we face this constantly is it, they think it immediately means starting a business and just making money. And I know a lot of your work is around social ventures. So can you talk a little bit about that focus and, and your work in that space? Oh, I love that you brought this up. So the E word, um, because sometimes when we're talking, we're in academic settings and people hear the word entrepreneurship, they think oh, that's that for-profit education stuff. And that that's scary because in education, we're much too pure for things like business and numbers. We're, we're about people and more sophisticated things. To me, social entrepreneurship brings those two worlds together where, you know what, I do think innovation and entrepreneurship have really important places in, in academics. And if we could embrace what's best about those and still hold on to the vision and mission and values that we have in education, then we should be able to do better with education. We should be able to serve our students better, serve our colleagues better, and our communities better. So it is a sale for some people to even use the word entrepreneurship in academic settings. But I think that innovation and entrepreneurship are key opportunities for us to make education even better than it is. And the meaningful work that we love, because people think it's bringing greed and selfishness into education. And I do not see it that way at all. Yeah, no, I definitely mirror your thoughts. And there's so much research out there that the generation that are in our K-12 schools and are, you know, that are entering the higher education realm today are just much more globally connected and therefore much more into like servanthood and volunteerism and like having this connection to try to drive meaningful change across the globe. So I think it's really relevant now more than ever to bring in this idea of entrepreneurship as a vessel for social change, for sure. Yes. Um, and I love what you said there because- I think it's really important for educators to understand the difference that we're not just talking about like this for-profit bad word, but we're talking about entrepreneurship in the sense of just opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I do want to dive into Club Z because that is, um, so just for all our listeners, we were recommended to connect with Karen because she has worked with Becky over at NACI, who was one of our previous interviews on this podcast. And she just saw natural connections between your work with Club Z and kind of the work of EntreEd and this mission of infusion of entrepreneurship at a younger level. So why don't we deep dive into kind of what Club Z is and its mission? So uh, Z overall is, um, has a, broad, a big broad mission and that's facilitating positive organizational change while delivering student success. And it's about how we can be doing this work. We don't have to wait to do the work until we've learned something new. We learn as we do the work. And for students, you know, we've got the SESI data and there's plenty of research out there that says our students need to feel a sense of belonging. So even the word club, the club Z part is about belonging. And we also know that to have a sense of belonging and even to engage students, we need to invite them many, many times because some students will take the first invitation, but uh, many students need to be invited six times or throughout the year 
<laughs> or for two years. And so the Club Z model has a club component. So students can drop in, stop by. There are one or two meetings a week where they can stop by to engage. Uh, and then we have events um, throughout the year. And we have a strategic calendar. One of the themes is one thing leads to another. Because if we do an isolated event and nothing came before it and nothing came after it, then we're probably not increasing engagement. And so everything that we do um, has one thing lead, leads to another built into it so that students are invited and invited and invited. Um, and then when they come, hopefully they're experiencing belonging and hospitality and fun and getting outside their comfort zone. Um, maybe they're in a pitch contest or maybe they do a service learning project or they go out and work on increasing voter registration through civic engagement. So we're engaging in students, employees, and the community together side by side, not based on role, but everybody working together on these projects so that we're building skills, doing more than we've done before, taking students outside their comfort zone, and again, giving them experiences to, so that they can find out that they can do something that they never imagined that they were capable of. I think that's so important. I really love what you said about the sense of belonging, and I, I didn't even think about the strategic decision to call it a club Z because of that sense of belonging. There's your psych coming out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's woven in there. There are lots of layers. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, and I love that they're, they're getting exposure actually on my, so the last interview was, we were interviewing our, our co-hosts because Toy interviewed me because we hadn't really told our listeners who we were. And one of the things that I brought up was like this exposure to different experiences really helped guide me to my own path. And I think that's kind of what Club Z is doing for a lot of those students is providing them these opportunities to work on such a wide range of projects so that they can find their passions. Right. And I really love that. Um, I do want to talk about something that we face a lot in the world of entrepreneurship education initiatives is the idea of how you evaluate their success mm -hmm. in terms of outcomes. So I was wondering if you might dive a little bit into like, how do you, what do you consider a success in Club Z? Is there a story of a student that's really meaningful that you'd like to share? Well, I'll um, tell you the, um, one of the other things that's built in, and this is IO psychology that's built into the, the Club Z model is it, integrative, integrated, sustainable, scalable programming. And so as an assessment piece, um, if we initiate something new in education, we ask ourselves, is this integrative? Does it connect that which is not currently connected? Is it integrated? Are we designing um, a program as a whole or are we creating another silo and a little um, you know, individual a la carte project, which is really kind of a waste of resources. Is If we go through the uh, difficulty of startup with an initiative, is it sustainable? And if, it is, if we can already tell that the model isn't sustainable, why are we going through startup? Um, and then scaling, um, we have limited resources in higher education. And even if we're more entrepreneurial, we're not going to be able to capture all of the resources that we wish we had to do what we want to do on behalf of our students, colleagues, and the community. So um, it has to be scalable. So the most, uh, the best and simplest and most elegant example of that is the Club Z Achievement Award. So students can do any creative and action-oriented project, any creative and action-oriented project. So it could be a teeny tiny thing because they haven't done something on their own before, or they can participate in a group project like service learning or civic engagement, 
or they maybe they've done other things in the past and now they're ready to do something bigger. Maybe they're going to create a PSA campaign or lead, a, lead an initiative themselves. So students can do any creative and action-oriented project, and then they answer 10 reflective questions. So a lot of this design will, to service learning people, will make sense because there's reflective learning. So they answer these 10 questions. They create an executive summary um, about their experience, and the 10 questions are strategic too. And then we have an executive summary. The student has reflected upon what they actually did, and we tell them, hey, when you go to interview for a scholarship or a job or you're seeking venture capital, you don't want to tell the person across the table that you think you'd be good at that someday. You want to tell them, here's what I've already done. Um, so the Z Achievement Award um, is an opportunity for them to build self-efficacy, um, uh, demonstrate that they can do something they haven't done before, and then they have a written record of it. So they can put it in scholarship applications, job applications, that kind. So back to the metrics. Easy, cheap and easy metrics are quantitative data. So we can say that, for example, in our pilot, more than 300 students have completed the Club Z Achievement Award. And, and we have records because they had, they created the executive summaries. Those executive summaries are also our marketing because those become the stories that inspire other students to do a Club Z Achievement Award. On the more qualitative data, which is what I think is most powerful, is when you read what the students actually said. Um, and when we have accreditation, you know, we're looking at assessment, um, we're looking at the infusion of critical thinking um, too, because those are organizational. Um, requirements that we have, it's all in there. So we can do that one simple thing. It's customized to the level of the student. Um, and we've got plenty of metrics that we can pull out of there um, to show that this works. And it's really about letting the student be who they are and develop uh, across a, a continuum and toward a trajectory that makes sense to them giving them purposeful meandering opportunities. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, the students will speak for themselves. I love the the qualitative side of any of these kinds of initiatives because, I mean, like, it, they literally speak for themselves. Yes. Um, so mm -hmm. hard question because you said you had around 300 people that have done the Achievement Awards. Like, what is the coolest project or one that stands out that a student has done? There was an art student who created a, a miniature art show in our library, and so... It was about an issue to her that was really important and personal, but she put her art and herself out into the world in this library exhibit. And then that was one that we were easy, it was easy for us to use to create art projects with other students who did the same. So with that, her project about really her personal pain, she put into an art exhibit, um, shared it with the world, and then her work inspired other students to do more of the same. And that's part of the one thing leads to another. We have a lot of themes that are really about deep things. They sound kind of light and fun, like one thing leads to another, but that's really powerful stuff when somebody shares their story and it um, inspires the story of someone else. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not easy to do. I mean, yeah. at all, like that's mm -hmm. a big risk to take. Right. And I didn't say it because that was part of, um, it was, she put herself in, out in the world, in our little world, but I don't know about the national world, but I'll tell you, um, a student, Chris, and, and a lot of people in our world know the story of Chris and he, his world, his story can be out there in the world, but, um, and Chris has a background. He came from Los Angeles and he had some difficulties. He had relatives that were killed in um, gang violence and he came to 
Arizona and decided to sign up for a community college. I'm shortening the story here, but taking the bus to get to college. And then he took um, a psychology and culture class. And in the class, we talked about belonging and we talked about everybody needs belonging. And so he started associating that with gang culture. And he worked uh, one-on-one with students around our campus. He inspired so many people um, and did really amazing work as a student. not as a paid employee. And now one thing leads to another. Um, Chris decided he actually got a Fulbright scholarship to Arizona State University. Fast forward again, Chris is now a social entrepreneur, um, glass artist, and he just recently returned to Phoenix from a retreat at this amazing art community in North Carolina, and he's now being considered for a fellowship. So some of these stories, And and it really does take time to go into the stories because they're so powerful. But I think if you if you came and hung out with us um, for an hour, actually, you wouldn't be able to leave because you'd get to hear the stories of the students. And we do have videos people can watch. Yeah, we'll definitely link a couple of the videos because I know I watched them before I interviewed you and they were just so powerful. And I love Chris's story and the story of the young lady with the art show. I think that's so potent. And I'll be coming over. So I'll be in Arizona. Like I would love to come and visit and just figure out how I can learn a little bit more about what you're doing because I think it's so meaningful and it's a really good kind of like best practice for a lot of people interested in this space. Which brings me to my second to last question. So we talked about this a little bit. We hinted at why education needs to start infusing this piece, but in an overarching statement, like why do you think it is vital for today's youth to be exposed to entrepreneurship education and their K-12 experience? For kids that are entering kindergarten about now, most of the jobs that are going to be available to them have not even been invented yet. We don't even know what the workplace is going to look like, maybe even five years, 15 years. And if uh, rather than people being afraid of robots taking our jobs, we need to prepare for adapting and um, being able to deal with whatever comes our way. And that really is the heart of entrepreneurship. So if we can create experiences throughout the education system where students are finding out that they're capable of doing what they haven't done before, that even in new circumstances and uh, with unfamiliar variables, they can put things together in a new way and get things done. We don't want new situations to be scary. We don't want them to show up for the first day of the work saying, can you give me the spreadsheet that tells me steps one through 10 so that I can be successful here? Um, They need to be comfortable going in and say, yes, I can solve problems that haven't been uh, solved yet. I can create solutions um, to problems that you haven't even identified yet. And so I think that's what's exciting. Um, And that's about grit and resilience um, and those other things that we have been talking about, uh, you know, you can create at the top of Bloom's taxonomy that's been around for a very long time now. So if we give students those experience throughout their educational lifetime, then they're going to be ready for whatever comes at them um, in the next part of the 21st century. So I think we have to adapt, though, too, because if we were raised on transparencies and multiple choice tests and lectures, then education, we're going to have to get outside our comfort zone and do things differently, too. So we're going to have to have the humility of learners and do things in new ways so that we can help our students do things in new ways, too. That kind of just touched on the second half of my question, right? Is like, how, like, what is a small step for an educator to start moving in that manner? And I think that just your topic about your talk about, you know, how we have to be comfortable learning as well. Is there any like one resource or tangible piece of advice that we also, we often ask this, if there's like an article or a book or some kind of 
anything that would be tangible as like a small step for an educator? I would say, because I I think belonging for us at work is important too. And some of my best friends at work are the people that I work with every day on these things. For example, we have a team and we're a team of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs um, and we are the Z Network team. So John, Sheila, David, Bruce, and I work together. And I think when you find people to be brave with together, that makes it easier for us to learn, easier for us to try new things. So I would really say start with people who have other students actively engaged. Find other people who are willing to be humble and learn new things and not have perfect control over what's happening. Because those are really the people around us that have, they're the innovators and the early adapters and those who have the heart of an entrepreneur. So I would say start with the people who you can work closely with and be brave and do this work together. I love how you tied back to belonging because I think that's really good advice. I feel like oftentimes we hear educators that feel like they're the lone wolf kind of driving this initiative forward in their communities. And so that can be really isolating. So trying to find your your own sense of belonging in your own community to really build off of is so important. I really, I think that's really strong advice. And you know, and I would go back to the um, facilitating positive organizational change while delivering student success. Because in education, even when I worked for pharmaceutical companies, my perception was that it was much more collaborative. In education, with our hierarchy and uh, master's degrees and PhDs, I think there is a lot of social influence to say, I did this. This is me, mine. And that undermines collaboration. That undermines innovation. So it's not only, it won't only feel good to work with passionate, courageous people. It will help unlock some of the potential in organizations that's hidden with kind of bureaucratic culture. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And I love what you said about like working with passionate people because none of my listeners know this, but you've been smiling the entire time you're talking, which is like really infectious because typically like people talk, they don't have like a smile. It's pretty impressive that you can talk as well as you do with that big smile on your the whole time. I'm, I'm really impressed. <laughs> but um, I think in terms of like creating that sense of community, we always like to ask our guests because, you know, entrepreneurship is a really collaborative space. How could people get in touch with you um, if they're interested in learning more about your work, if they just want to kind of reach out and say, thank you for this, because it was really meaningful to me. How could people connect with you? I'm easy to find. I'm not very good at Twitter, but I do have a Twitter account. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. On the social entrepreneurship side, my website is karensart.com. And if you just Google Paradise Valley Community College in Phoenix, Arizona, or the Maricopa Community Colleges, you will find us. You will find our our team of um, people. And we, we are collaborators, and we're happy to help anyone, even if you just need encouragement to say, yes, keep going, do this work. It really does matter. Okay, perfect. Well, we'll be sure to link everything and make sure that whenever we post this, it'll be connected to you. But thank you so much. This has been super, you know, rewarding and meaningful to me personally. Like I think I've had a lot to think about and and how to grow myself even more as a social change agent. So thank you. And I, I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. Thank you, Amber.